Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'm your host. I'm joined by Ufahamu Africa's co-producer, Sarah Agatoni. Agatoni, how's your week been? Good. It's Lots been good. exciting things happening. Yeah. Can we start with talking about Tanzania? What yeah. is going on? They expelled the UNDP official from the country. They did. Our double is probably no longer in the country, right? She was ordered to leave. She's a Gambian national. And the reason for expulsion was deteriorating performance. She allegedly had strained relations with her staff. But, you know, apparently there's also more to the story. I mean, if you just think about it on its face, it's interesting to me that the Tanzanian government can expel a UNDP official for poor performance, right? And they can decide, you know, who in this international organization is allowed to stay in the country. But there's more to the story, right? Yeah. Local media links the move to Ms. Dabo's criticism of the elections that happened in Zanzibar last year. Which were originally annulled in October 2015. Yeah. Because, as some have pointed out, the ruling party stood to lose. Right. So they held elections in March 2016. Right. Chama Chama Penduzi, Tanzania's ruling party, does well, right? They won, They their candidate won by a landslide in Zanzibar. Exactly. Where CCM does not have significant political support. Yeah. Well, Tanzania's neighbor to the north had some good news. Kenyan Mary Keitani broke the women's world record for the marathon earlier this week at the London Marathon. Fellow Kenyan Daniel Wanjiru won the men's race. But interestingly, Olympic silver medalist Feise Lilesa finished 12th and crossed the finish line with his arms crossed overhead, a symbol of protest in solidarity with the Aroma protests in his home country, Ethiopia. Lilesa made the same overhead gesture as he entered a news conference that preceded the marathon. A spokesman for the Ethiopian government dismissed Lilesa's claims of violence against Aroma peoples at the hands of the state. Of course, Lilesa has not been back to Ethiopia since he began making these uh, protest moves in these international sporting competitions. There's also some big news in global health this week, as the World Health Organization announced Kenya, Ghana, and Malawi would begin anti-malaria vaccination programs with the vaccine RTSS. Of course, I want us to qualify our optimism here. It's important to note the scientific study measuring the efficacy of the RTSS vaccine. Quoting from the study, the vaccine, quote, reduced the number of cases of clinical malaria in children by 36%. The reduction was only 26% among infants. I didn't even know they could roll out a drug that is only 36% effective. There is another vaccine in development. PFSPZ, which is made by a small biotech startup, Scenaria, that Mm -hmm. seems to have a much higher efficacy in preventing malaria. A 2015 Newsweek article goes in depth about Scenaria and its malaria vaccine compared to RTSS, which is produced by GlaxoSmithKline, this large pharmaceutical company, and makes some connections to potentially uh, GlaxoSmithKline just having a lot of PR power. Right. But it's a huge difference. So I looked up the Scenaria drug on Science Daily, and apparently it's meant to be closer to 100% effective. So it still buffles the mind why this is not the drug being rolled out. It does. In reading about all of this, I just kept thinking to myself, I really wish I could ask Melissa Grabois about this. Right? An expert on malaria whose book we featured in an earlier episode on the experiments of medical ethics. And I thought a lot about the ethics of rolling out a vaccine 
that we know may not be as effective as another vaccine in development. Exactly. Are we missing something? You know, I don't know if we're missing something. And I just want to say to our listeners, we're just raising questions here and we're hoping to go in depth with some more research on this topic and feature more discussion of it in a later episode. Check out our website at ufahamuafrica.com on Monday morning when we'll post links to the pieces we've mentioned here as well as bonus links to things we found interesting, including a list of links of new African podcasts. In this week's episode, we chat with Dr. Candace Watts-Smith, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at UNC. Her first book, Black Mosaic, The Politics of Black Pan-Ethnic Diversity, was published in 2014. We talk about her book and about racial and political attitudes among millennials in the U.S. Most controversially, she shares and defends her unpopular opinion on Yag Yassi's novel Homegoing and provokes some thought and discussion. Thank you, Candice, for coming in today and sharing more about your research and your work. Thanks for having me. Your book, Black Mosaic, published by NYU Press, is a book that looks at the Black experience in America and how it can be similar and different according to different identity groups. I wondered if you could share the motivation for writing this book. There's a cognitive distortion that the easy argument is the more compelling argument. We see that a lot in poli-sci literature and academic literature, generally speaking, even though it's our job to unpack the nuances. I noticed that a lot of the sociology literature, the literature says, you know, first generation immigrants don't like black people and they think they're better than them. And if they identify as black, it's because they're not doing awesome. The poli sci literature says black people are in it together. Maybe there are some differences among them, but they're going to stick it out. It's more complicated than that. I noticed something different. Black people aren't always together, but sometimes they are. That sometimes Black immigrants identify with their country of origin, and sometimes they don't. And sometimes everyone's all in it together, and sometimes they're not. Right. And so I just wanted to think through the nuances of Black politics, given that there's increasing ethnic diversity. What does that mean for understanding Black identity, for understanding Black politics, for understanding American politics, generally speaking? So I assign your book in my class on comparative race and ethnic politics because I think it's a great way of thinking about different identity groups within an identity group. I have a lot of students from the continent, from Africa. When I meet with some of them, they talk to me about some of the experiences that they're having. They encounter challenges from multiple fronts. So the experience of being Black in America, but also not being African-American. So one of the things I like about sharing your book with them is saying, okay, this thing that you're experiencing, it's not just happening to you. This is an actual thing. Someone has studied it. Students have really responded positively to reading your book, but I wonder if there's something more you would have liked to have included or... It's all contextual too, right? So your students are at an elite college in Massachusetts. Their experiences around blackness and race are going to look very different from if they were at a public school in the South or if they were at Ohio State. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I bring up Ohio State because the proportion of black immigrants in Columbus is really quite large. It's like 30 or something percent, 28%. I think that's what it is. Wow. And so that's a different experience if there are a lot of other people who are like you or if there's not, right? And so if I could go back or write a second book, it would be a multi-city study 
Black Mosaic gives you a broad brush of what that experience of being a Black immigrant um, might mean, but it misses out on the local dynamics. You're in North Carolina, you're either Black or white and now Latino. But if you're in New York City, where are you from from? That is a question that you would probably get a lot more because an identity as a Nigerian or a Jamaican person has some meaning to a lot of people, whereas that might not mean anything in Utah. In a liberal college setting, and by liberal, I mean not just that it's a liberal arts college, but that it's a place where people are quote unquote progressive. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's this general idea that young people tend to be progressive, less racist, and more accepting of people from other backgrounds. And I know that you're doing work on millennials and their attitudes and political behavior. And I just wondered if you could share more about that. Depending on what question you ask, we can say that younger people are less racist. If we ask young people, do they think that Black people are lazy? They are probably less likely to say that than older people. And so on that measure, sure, yeah. Millennials are are not as racist. If we ask a question about, do you think that police shootings of unarmed Black people, are they incidents or are they a indication of a systematic inequality? they're probably just as likely to say incident as older people. And on that count, they're no different. And so what that means is that young people love diversity, but they don't actually live diverse lives, Mm. right? That they don't want to be racist, but they also see racism as an issue of one's heart and mind and not a structural issue. And so what that means for racial dynamics. I don't want to use the word race relations. Right. On campus is that you do have liberal folks all around, but who have a narrow understanding of what racism is. Right. And so you have a barrier to overcome you. How do you undo a system of inequality if you don't realize that inequality is systematic? When you were first talking about these two potential survey questions, I was thinking, oh, it's because they've learned that saying Black people are lazy is racist. So they'll just say no to that question because millennials have learned that's a racist response. Whereas a question, say, about unarmed Black men being shot, you know, they haven't learned yet to say that that's racist. I was thinking of it in a very different way. But the way that you've talked about it suggests that, in fact, that they're not learning. When something is systematic... And it's so obvious to me that it's systematic. It's really hard for me to show that to someone without saying it's obvious. Don't you see it? It's like those 3D posters that you used to see in the mall in the Mm -hmm. 90s where it's Mm -hmm. like, no, don't you see Mm -hmm. it? It's right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, but if someone can't see it, you can't show them how to see it. So is there a way? Have you found ways that have been successful at trying to kind of open people's minds to this particular problem? The problem is that the dots haven't connected. People notice that a lot of middle-class white folks live in this neighborhood and lower-income Black people live in this neighborhood. And you can look at that and say like, well, it must be that those kind of people like to live together without thinking about maybe some policy reasons around redlining, for example. Or that, oh, these kind of people go to this school and these kind of people go to that school. It must be because... They like going to those schools without 
thinking that, oh, schools are related to housing and housing is related to wealth and wealth is related to education and education is related to housing. And so if you're looking at each phenomenon separately, you can come up with some other reason why you see what you see that is not based in race. Because we think about racism as behavioral and attitudinal and not structural, Mm -hmm. we think that you have to be intentional. Real estate agents must intend for Black people to live over here. And that's not how it works. Because structural racism doesn't require intent. So what are you working on now that's exciting you? So I'm one of these people who just do what feels good. Mm -hmm. And that is probably not to my benefit in the academy, but it's a benefit (laughs) to me as a human being. Right. I've been working on a project with Rebecca Kreitzer on contraception deserts. You know, we always talk about abortion and, oh, there's so many policies that are preventing people from getting access to abortion. But abortion policy is becoming increasingly intertwined with policy around contraception. And so what we're tracking is who has access to affordable contraception? Where are affordable contraception places located? Do women and families that need affordable contraception have access to it. So we're thinking about it kind of like in the way of food deserts, that grocery stores are systematically placed in middle-class neighborhoods and convenience stores, which don't have affordable fresh food and fruits, are placed in lower-income neighborhoods. Just a few days ago, the United States withdrew its funding of UNFPA, Mm -hmm. and the claim was the UN branch that deals with reproductive health and family planning, that they were providing and supporting abortions Mm -hmm. in China, which has been proven false multiple Mm -hmm. times, but it doesn't matter. And so the U.S. defunding of UNFPA is effectively going to end the provision of reproductive health care for women around the world. What's going to happen for those women? Yeah, I am following that because there's that saying where like you feed the alligator in hopes that he eats you last. You know, I think about that a lot because I'm like, so what what the United States is doing is first we can get those women over there. They're going to come after the rest of us. I'm totally following that because Mm -hmm. I think it's a signal of what can we get away with. Have there been any books that you've read in the last few years Um, about, you know, Africans or Africans in the diaspora that you've enjoyed or that you might recommend or that you Mm, thought was thought-provoking? Sure. Um, Homegoing. I did not like this book. Okay, how come you don't like this book? I did not like this book in comparison to Americana. In Americana, the book opens up with the main character at a braid shop. And the way she describes that experience at the braid shop, it is accurate. It is super accurate. And so while I have not ever been to Nigeria, I can believe that what she's saying about that is accurate based on the accuracy of what she's saying about the United States. I'm just, I'm just, okay, okay, totally making an assumption. Right. The way that Kiasi describes the way that things go down in the U.S. is superficial, in Mm. my opinion, and is kind of accurate, but mostly stereotypical. And so it makes me wonder what that means about what she's saying. Like, we don't actually really learn a lot about Ghana. What are people wearing? What do people look like? What are they doing? Mm -hmm. That's one thing. 
The second thing is, is oh, that I more. think she devolves on stereotypes about black people. People should read it. I mean, there's something to the kind of... Parallel history. Yeah, like there's something to that. Global racism. Yeah. Structural inequalities. Okay. Glad I asked you, and I'm grateful for this conversation, even though I'm like, a little bit of my heart has died. So, that's okay. We both liked Americana. We did both like Americana. (laughs) You're right. Also, I would like to read Foreign Gods, Inc. I haven't heard of this. So... I'm not sure what it's about. I've heard a piece of the story on NPR and I started reading it and it starts off with this black African immigrant who like went to UMass Amherst, but he has an accent. And so even though he's an econ major and he's very smart, he is having a hard time getting a job. So he's a taxi driver. He's trying to like figure out like, how can I make money? And he learns that there are white people who buy foreign gods from this guy, art dealer, God's dealer or something. He thinks like, I'm going to go get the God from my tribe and like from my village. Yeah. I'm going to steal it. And I'm going to like make bank, which obviously he knows he shouldn't do, but he's like, I'm stuck. And there's this guy who like is going to buy it for God knows how much. That's all I know about the book. I like this. Also, you know, Western mass. Thank you so much, Candace Watt-Smith, for talking to us about your book, Black Mosaic, and uh, for sharing your insights on other things related to uh, the Black experience. Thanks, Kim. That's all for this week. Share your thoughts and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent at ufahamuafrica.com or on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Sarah Agatoni, Smith College, Class of 2017, and Nikki Okondo, Smith College, Class of 2018, are Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistants. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Our featured song this week is Up in the Air by Rosa Reed. Yo, let me hit some. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safari Salama. Up in the air, up in the air, up in the air, I'm a pinnacle, fearless, rah, criminal, I ain't got an ass to get your attention, got you in the school, it's a rap class in session, Rosa on the beat, ain't nobody can defeat, I'm a lyrical disease and I'm going in speed, oh God, always on the max, never minimal, Dragging with my crew, you a cynical. Lord, you, you, you be clinical. I be on the bars, never physical. Untouchable, brutal like a beast. See me eating fake niggas like a motherfucking feast. Yo, I told you motherfuckers I would take over the streets. And I promise it's a death. See me murdering the beast. Up in the air. Yo, sayangu inanga. Up in the air. Swaga zangu mini ah. Up in the air. Yo, mana nina pa. Up in the air. Tatu zalako niko ah. Up in the air. Yo, sayangu inanga. So the zango mini up in the air. No man and in the park. Up in the air. This is the lap on you up. Mina Sakado, Toto Laki Chagaleo, Mina Shikamo, Female Kendrick, Noma Kunya Flow, My Game Classic, Nipa Shikamo, uh, Etisiki Weziki Swahili, Utakupa Kichaga with the deal, Nichiki Chakangichi, 
And I feel like a little awful. Yeah, I'm super sensitive. Energy on positive. Out of this space and on top, that is where I is. Bitch, you gotta go. You will never roar. You a kitty cat. I'm a lioness, son. Ah. Sending me a drink, I got bars. Ah. Thinking you a cooler, got sad. Ah. Floating in the air with the stars. Ah. Rosa to the re, I'm the boss. Called you a stop bitch, and that's where your ass is. The fool's what you is, and you're never gonna top it. You'll never win my race. You just gotta deal, cause I win. And I am the god of the lack of Nico. Up in the air, you say I'm going up in the air. So the Zango mini up in the air, no man and in the park. Up in the air, you say I'm going up in the air. So the Zango mini up in the air, no man and in the park. Up in the air, you say I'm going up in the air.